Welcome back to the Redefining Anger podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly Roy, a self-motivated force turned recovering perfectionist. After experiencing the traumatic and sudden loss of my father, turning to anger as a form of protection while living in a state of survival, and facing the wake-up call that I needed nearly two years later, I found community and began a journey of growth and deep internal healing. I'm on a mission to normalize feeling. I believe that getting quiet with yourself and really feeling what needs to be felt is the key to building a relationship of trust and self-respect with yourself. I created this space to vulnerably share my journey with you, how I'm learning to navigate life after loss, and how feeling alive and abundant is still possible. I believe in the power of sharing our stories, and my hope is that my story can empower you to navigate yours. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome back to the Redefining Anger podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly Roy. And for those of you who have been around for some time and have been following my show and listening along, you know that I myself have been on my own recovery journey, a healing journey. I identify as a recovering perfectionist and I also identify as being in recovery from addiction, but not the addiction that you would that you would think, right? So I have not ever been addicted to any kind of a substance. However, through my healing journey, I have learned that addiction comes in many different forms. And addiction for me looks like staying busy, staying productive so that I don't have to be alone with my thoughts or my feelings. Uh, addiction to perfectionism, to always needing to have it right, to be right because of fear of judgment or even fear of my own disappointment in myself and, um, and, and so many other different forms of addiction when it comes to mental health. And my journey started after I lost my father very suddenly in 2019. And another form of addiction that I came to realize was the codependence that I had on him and how I spent the better part of my life seeking his validation, his approval, which is where a lot of that perfectionism comes from. So the point that I'm making here is that addiction comes in a number of different ways. And when you speak of recovery, Recovery can also be for a number of different things. And all of this to say that the guest that I'm bringing to the episode today has her own story of recovery. And her story of recovery does come from addiction to substance. She battled with alcohol use disorder for years. My guest on the show today is my one of my clients, Colleen Cashman, and her story is remarkable. Colleen is the host of the Recover with Colleen podcast, which is soon to be known as It's Not About the Alcohol, Holistic Recovery and Emotional Sobriety. She's a master coach helping women to reclaim their personal power through emotional sobriety. 
Most of her clients come to her looking to escape the alcohol trap. They quickly discover this is a thinking problem and not a drinking problem. And that identifying as a quote, alcoholic who can't control herself only makes it worse. Colleen developed the 12 week accelerated recovery process using evidence-based strategies in neurophysiology and psychology to help women heal from shame and transform their sense of identity so they can learn how to trust themselves with or without a drink in their hand. In this episode, Colleen shares about her recovery journey from alcohol after 12 years of suffering from alcohol use disorder. She dives into the moment she made the decision to quit, excuse me, to quit, the steps she took to support herself in her road to recovery, and how she learned that identifying as an alcoholic and promising to stay sober forever is a mistake. As Colleen explains, it's not about the alcohol, it's about your relationship with yourself. Tune in as Colleen gets real about how our thoughts are the real habit we need to break and how she uses emotional sobriety to help women through their own recovery journey. And so in my conversation with Colleen, I really learned so much from her in her own journey and how there are so many parallels to my journey, which is why I am now referring to my own healing journey as a journey of recovery, recovery from addiction. And like I said, addiction comes in so many shapes and sizes, so many different forms. And so even if you yourself do not battle with alcohol or addiction to a substance of some kind, I really encourage you to tune into today's episode because I think that there is something here for everybody. There is something to learn here with about the relationship that we have with ourselves, the thoughts in our mind, and how really as Colleen puts it in in the episode today, that our thoughts are the real habit that we need to break. And so I hope that you find so much wisdom and value from today's episode as much as I did. And although Colleen is my client, I really learned so much from her in this conversation with her. And so if you enjoy it as much as I did, please, please, please share it with somebody else who, who would also benefit from it. Share it and also share it on your social media. Tag me, tag Colleen. If you're not already following the podcast, please follow the show and also rate and leave a review because it does help to organically grow the show and to spread the word for everybody. So I thank you so much for being here and I'm so excited to hear what you think about today's conversation. Calling all female entrepreneurs, this brief intermission is for you. Registration for my next pitching meetup series is open. This next session is the fourth and final of the series. It is happening on Wednesday, November 8th at 12 p.m. Eastern. And this month, we are diving into crafting the perfect pitch. We are going to be talking about the pitch, the follow-ups, 
the importance of template creation, and how to grab your collaborators' attention and get them engaged and excited to connect with you. Like I said, this is going to be the final session of this current series. And the great thing is when you register for this session, you will also get your hands on the prior sessions in the entire series. So what are you waiting for? Like I said, registration is free. There will also be a replay in the event that you're not able to make it live. The link for this is in the show notes and you can also come visit me on my Instagram page at runningongrit, running.on.grit, where you can find all of the information in my bio. I hope to see you there. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I have a wonderful guest here today, Colleen Cashman. She is actually my client. So we connected because she had some pitching needs and we've been working together for about three months now. And she comes to us today with a unique story, a story, her own personal story of recovery that she is now using in a positive and impactful light to help other women. So she is a master coach and she works with women today and she works with them on emotional sobriety. So welcome, Colleen. I'm so excited to have you here today. Can you please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I will be turning 50 this next month, this month, I guess it's August already. So I'm turning 50 and I would say my new phase of life began about three and a half years ago when I woke up one day and said, I can't do this anymore. I was drinking heavily every day. It was early in COVID. I tried to drink through it. Like, you know, they were promoting, you know, just make mocktails or make cocktails at home and, and enjoy yourself, stay at home. And I for sure went off the rails. I had been a daily drinker and it had been accelerating for sure. My tolerance was so high that I had to hide how much I was drinking. You know, I could clear half a fifth of vodka on some nights. And of course I would not have wanted to admit that to everybody. I was very high functioning. And when the world was turning, I was teaching yoga at eight o'clock in the morning and leading hot power yoga classes. I ran marathons. I have seven kids and I was busy. And I also was a coach at the time I was, uh, did gut health and plant-based nutrition. So I was living a fully functional life that on the outside, very few people would have known I I had a problem. I mean, I was always one to make jokes about alcohol and I never showed up anywhere without a bottle of wine and probably some in my, you know, Yeti or whatever. So I didn't hide that aspect of myself. I thought it was normal. I thought it was healthy. I mean, I have a master's degree in nutrition and I didn't know that alcohol was addictive. And I didn't know that alcohol is a highly depressant sedative. And I never made the connection, the hello, Mr. Obvious connection, that the issues I was struggling with, specifically mental health, my my world was just dark. And I was more and more negative and I felt hopeless and I did not have confidence in myself. Now, I knew how to act. 
And anybody that was around me probably thought that, you know, I was killing it and doing great. And, you know, all my balls were in the air on the outside, but I was getting to a point, obviously, when you are drinking that much that I was just not able to keep functioning. And what happened when the world shut down is I no longer had a reason to not drink earlier and earlier in the day. I had no reason to get up in the morning. I didn't have to drive my kids places. So all of the barriers, uh, what I would say the rails on the bowling alley, you know, they put up the bumper, the bumper rails when you have a little kid, the, the bumper rails that kept me out of the gutter were no longer there. They went away when COVID started. And so I just, I just basically, after five or six weeks of my drinking upticking more and more, I remember I went to the liquor stores about five weeks into COVID and they had by then, you know, had the roadside service tents for liquor stores. And I remember going through and picking up two mega handles of Grey Goose vodka and thinking like, I can't pretend that I'm having a party. Cause I'm, nobody's having a party and I can't pretend I wasn't just here five days ago and like, oh my God, what is going on? And I just felt sick and I was dealing with so much stress. And again, because of my ignorance, and I don't say that in a self-demeaning way, I was ignorant to alcohol and because of that ignorance, I had not connected any of the dots. And so the day I woke up and decided to quit drinking, that wasn't like a long back and forth. I mean, not to say that I never thought about quitting drinking, but I didn't identify as an alcoholic. I just thought, okay, I'm trapped in my house and there's one thing that I can do. And that is to quit drinking. I had teenagers that I was trying to you know, homeschool, get out of bed in the morning and life was so stressful. My husband is a doctor. And so he was working all sorts of crazy hours. Money was unsure. My own clients were, you know, kind of MIA. So my own income was going down and I just woke up and I was like, there's one thing I can do and it's to quit drinking. And so the morning that I did that, I called the AA hotline because not having ever been willing to look at, you know, sobriety as a thing, I avoided all of that. You know, I can remember signing up for sober sis's 30 day, 30 days to sobriety and blocking her before it even got to the start date. And so I, I just called AA because I didn't know that there was a whole community of people and so many different options for dealing with the drinking problem. And I just thought, well, I guess I must be an alcoholic. And so I went and I started with AA and I very quickly realized that it wasn't, um, that I wasn't impressed with the mindset I felt like the day I decided to quit drinking, like that was the most powerful thing I had done for myself in a long time to embrace my fear and do it anyway and speak my truth out loud, you know, even though it was a stranger on the phone, ask for help. And I felt like I was really powerful. And so I, I found it really confusing to figure out that no, indeed, I have to surrender my power and I have to say the words, I'm an alcoholic. And I basically have to commit the rest of my life to being in recovery. 
but I had been miserable. And when you're in a place like that, you just, you, you become willing to just do what you're told to do. And so I began my sober journey and that included for me, because it was COVID, I had a lot of time to read books um, and listen to podcasts and dry out. You know, I didn't find it hard to quit drinking once I made that decision. And so it, I felt better. Now it was a long road when you drink that much as a heavy drinker for a long time, there's, there's very legit dopamine deficit. My nervous system was dysregulated. All of that stuff I would come to learn. But at the time I thought, you know, I would just quit drinking and I would feel better right away. I thought my problem was with alcohol. And so if, you know, alcohol is the problem, sobriety is the solution, tiddly D, fiddly D, you know, I'm going to go on with my life. And it wasn't until about a year into sobriety that I realized I still felt hungover. You know, I felt better uh, for sure. I was super proud of myself and I was happy not needing to drink anymore. I felt free, but at the same time, I was still dealing with a lot of mental health issues. Mm -hmm. I was waking up every morning crying and I felt like I had no motivation. I remember saying, you know, a year into sobriety, like, why does it feel so hard to make myself work out when it was so much easier with a hangover? I was jumping around doing, you know, boot camps and power yoga and running marathons. And I had no trouble with motivation when it was, even though I was hungover. And so what I started to realize, Kim, was that my motivation had been tied to shame hmm. and all of the, all of the things that I was able to do as a drinker was me proving to myself and then the entire world in case anybody cared that I didn't have a drinking problem. I was trying to prove that I wasn't, you know, what I truly thought in my head, you know, out of control, weak, you know, no self, no self-confidence that I'm just pretending I'm just pretending and lying. And of course, as drinkers, if anybody in your audience residents resonates, it's like, we think we're getting away with it, mm -hmm. but in order to get away with it, we have to deny that we are human beings and we're not getting away with shit when we are hung over every single day and suffering, we are suffering. And so I realized that I, my whole motivation was tied to basically what I call now with my clients is a shame-based motivation. I, the motivation to, to feel good, to do good, to look good was fueled by feeling bad. And so that's why going into the AA program where we are, it's reinforced over and over that I'm an alcoholic, something is wrong with me. I'm not normal. You know, that continuing to use shame as a motivator was keeping me stuck. And while I was sober and physically doing great, I was also not sure how to motivate myself and be inside my own body because it felt good. And I started learning with 
brain chemistry, that dopamine is not just a neurochemical that you have a certain amount of, but it's tied to your self-narrative in your self-talk, you know, like I may be motivated to run because the story in my head is that running is fun, but running isn't fun for everybody, you know? So the motivation that I feel and the dopamine surge that I get from running is not universal. And so as I learned that the way I, that my motivation is actually tied to my self narrative about who I am and shaming myself was keeping me stuck and keeping me from truly stepping into freedom and happiness because I, I was living like a perfect, like I was still trying to be perfect. You know, I had just switched my goal of perfect. I used to think it being perfect was the perfect amount of drinks and getting all my stuff done. And now it was living this external set of rules that being sober would make me perfect and make me worthy and make me feel good. And it made my body feel better, but my mental health was still really struggling. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. And thank you. Thank you, Colleen, for sharing all of that. I, I, as my client, I am impressed with how much I just learned about you. Actually, seven kids. I didn't, I knew you were a mom, but I didn't know you had seven kids. That's wow. That's amazing. There's so much here to unpack. And the couple of things that I wanted to bring up, you, you made the comment earlier. uh, I knew how to act right? So I knew how to, when you were drinking, you knew how to act. And then, and now tying it back, you just said it to the perfectionism, right? So, so often I think, you know, with or without addiction, as you saw when you were sober, we so often tie our self-worth on external, right? The external circumstances on others and what people think of us and what people perceive of us that we act a certain way. We, we, we act a certain way so that people perceive us how we want to be perceived, right? So how confusing for you that must have felt after years of drinking, and then even with your drinking accelerating during COVID, to becoming sober, and as you said it, you still felt hungover. You still basically still felt like shit. Physically, you felt good, but yeah. mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you you still felt like shit. How confusing that must have been for you. Yeah, really, really defeating because I would say that I generally have a pretty positive outlook. You know, I mean, you have to you have to be able to focus on the the good when you, you are so high functioning, you know, I'm not a negative person and I'm definitely a person who accepts a challenge. Mm-hmm. And so being finally getting to a place in my life where I felt like I was doing it all behind closed doors and in front of people. Like I was who I said I was and still not feeling that reward of just, it's a feeling, you know, and the way I felt was still, I was really, really struggling. And I actually, for the first time in my life, even though alcohol is a depressant and I was dosing myself with high amounts, it wasn't until a a year into sobriety that I actually found myself in a doctor's office discussing whether or not I needed to go inpatient for depression because I had moderate to to severe depression. And that was coming, you know, I was no longer drinking again. So that just goes to show you that mindset is more powerful than any chemical. 
that our self narrative, you know, that even with all that alcohol, my self narrative had still been, you know, busy, I guess, motivating myself and that it wasn't the chemical alcohol. It was my story about myself, not being good enough and not being willing to give myself a break, beating myself up and also judging myself for negative emotions. You know, I think when you started to ask me that question, I answered that I'm a pretty positive person. Well, that's because being, having any sort of negative emotion made me really uncomfortable. I never learned that that's part of my perfectionism is that, you know, trying to present and always have everything perfect, which is a crazy expectation. You know, now I teach, you know, your mood is a bell curve in any given day. You're, you know, the chances of you being below the bell curve, like you think about a bell curve, 50% of your experiences are, are less than or, or below average. And so not knowing how to operate with myself on the days where I wasn't a hundred percent, whether it be mentally, physically, or just life, I had no, no skills, no, no tools for that, to have a relationship with myself that allowed for my humanity. I expected myself to be perfect, life to be perfect. If there was a problem, give it to me. I'm going to solve it so I can hurry up and feel better. I just couldn't tolerate emotional discomfort. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's so true for so many of us, you know, so we, you know, from a young age, we, you know, we, we bring with us trauma, whatever that trauma is, right. It could be like big T trauma, little T trauma, whatever that is. And we base our, you know, our self-worth, I guess you can say off of that. Right. So we carry with us. And I think a lot of us can resonate with that. We carry with us feelings of, uh, not enoughness or, you know, and like you said, we shame ourselves for having those negative emotions when it's really just an emotion. It's an, it's neutral. All emotions are neutral, right? But we don't like the discomfort that those quote unquote negative emotions bring us. And so to your point, it's so hard for us to be alone with ourselves. And so we adapt to having coping um, mechanisms, right? So be it addiction like alcohol or drugs or, you know, some other form of addiction, like I'll say, like for myself, staying busy, just having to stay busy and productive all the time, go, 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 move, 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 so that I don't have time to sit with my thoughts and be with myself, right? So I would like for you to touch on, you know, you you did touch on that a little bit about how, you know, how you were feeling when you were drinking, right? And kind of like what kept, kept you in that cycle of self-sabotage. But let's reflect a little bit on that compared to your discovery of emotional sobriety and where you're at now and how you help other women. I'd love to hear that transformation, that, that transition and how, how you really discovered that for yourself. Well, I can't say uh, that my awareness that I have now was something that was just some sort of light bulb moment. I would say it was continuing to show up and do the work and continuing to read books and learn. But the the one thing that I can point to was I was reading Don Miguel Ruiz, and he's the one that writes the four agreements, also the five levels of attachment and the voice of knowledge and so many books. I ordered them all and was reading them all. And he said something about how awareness is the ability to tell the difference between what's going on in your mind and what's going on in the world. Mm. 
And that statement is kind of the foundation of how I teach emotional sobriety and what I work with, with women to be able to tease apart your, your a neutral circumstance, which is a bill for a thousand dollars just derived in your mailbox. That's a neutral circumstance. It's not good or bad or right or wrong or fair or unfair. It just is what it is. And then being able to tell the difference between your thoughts about that circumstance, what you're making it mean and, and what the assumptions are. And, you know, it's the, your past history, your past emotional history, or your relationship with money, like all these things that make life seem so complicated. And when you're not practicing good emotional hygiene, understanding that your feelings I, I hate that, not I hate, I love the term that says feelings aren't facts, when in fact, feelings are the only facts you need to deal with. It's your thoughts and limiting beliefs and self-negative thinking that's causing the feelings. And so shifting your focus away from the story in your head about what you think whatever is happening means about you and just shifting into being able to deal with your nervous system and regulate, you know, that stress response and complete the stress cycle. That is, that is the key shift that I began to make when I read those words, there's a difference between what's going on in the outside world and what's going on in your head. Mm -hmm. And I have spent the last several years you know, teasing that out, but what's amazing. And if I was listening to this and had no awareness of it, or at one time, 99% of what we're thinking about is it's a product of our imagination, you know, next Tuesday, that's a, that's a concept, you know, our whole identity is a mental construct, who we think we are and how we think we should be mm -hmm. right and wrong, good and bad, fair and unfair, success and failure. Like all of these things are mental constructs. So when I work with women, I help them. I actually have a tool called the thought model where you learn the skill of separating out the, a neutral circumstance from a thought. And if you can just get to that, where you can recognize, okay, this is a thought and it's not the truth. None of our thoughts are true. You know, they're just beliefs and beliefs are just thoughts we no longer question. And so it's, I think that book, quite honestly, is what shifted my the access of how I view the world. And at one time, you know, I thought my behavior was what made me feel good, which is why I'm going to run, run and juggle all the balls and manage all the hoops. And, and because I thought that it, all doing all of those things would make me feel a certain way. And what I now know is the way I feel is a product of what's going on in my head, not the outside world. And that whatever I think about it is, is going to determine how I feel and that I can change the thoughts that are not serving me or that are self-limiting, you know? So even the even a problem like alcohol, which has a, a physical addiction component, it's not alcohol that's hard to break, you know? It's, it's yeah, it, it, 
it makes the more you drink it, the harder it is to control it. That's true. But put your hands in your pockets there. You just quit drinking. It's not alcohol. That's the problem. It's your thoughts and feelings about alcohol. It's, it was my thoughts and feelings about what it meant to be not drinking. And it was my thoughts and feelings about everything. And so beginning to unpack that was, you know, how I came to the road of recovery. And then now, if you ask me, I wouldn't tell you I'm in recovery from alcohol use disorder because I kicked it. It's, it's all good. I drink, you know, have a drink here and there and no desire for more. I'm in recovery from perfectionism because it's our thoughts that are the habit that we need to break because it's our thoughts. And just to speak to what you said about trauma, you know, how do we become perfectionists? It's most of us come to it because as children, we learned that we had to regulate our parents' nervous systems. You know, we, we co-regulate our nervous systems with the people around us. And if the adults in our lives don't feel happy and safe, then we're not happy and safe. So we learn the habit at a very young age to tell people what they want to hear, to do the things that they tell us to do. You know, some people go the opposite direction, but bottom line is that's how we develop a sense of identity based on what we see reflected to us from our parents. And so learning how to unpack all that and develop my own sense of identity, I mean, it's kind of a full-time job, you know? hundred <laughs> percent. Oh man, Colleen, so much yes to all of that, right? As you started talking about and you, and you said that statement that it's our awareness basically to differentiate between our thoughts and the world around us, right? I actually just released a, a solo episode not that long ago of fact fact or fiction, right? Are our thoughts fact or are they fiction? And how the majority of our thoughts are fiction, but we make them fact. We choose to believe them. And then exactly like what you said, we tie a meaning to it and we make it mean something about us, which then, you know, impacts our feelings, which impacts our behaviors, which impacts our thoughts. And it's just like this ongoing cycle. And then ultimately, we sabotage ourselves of joy because of this thought pattern that we end up in and because of, of choosing to believe all of our thoughts as fact. Right. And then, and then, yeah, to what you said too about trauma, that's exactly what it is. And and we adapt so young to that and not, you know, hundred percent from our parents, of course, because we are with our parents most of the time, but it's also just our caregivers in general could be, you know, from school, our surroundings, when we're so young, we're sponges, we take it all in. And to your point, yeah, we learn to act, going back to that word act, to to be light right to please others we don't want to bring discomfort to others because that's exactly what it is is nobody really understands or knows emotional intelligence or how to regulate their emotions and ultimately regulate their nervous system there's so much there and to your point yeah it is a hundred percent a full-time job to heal ourselves from that trauma and to just continue our healing ourselves going forward right i you mentioned to me before and it was probably through our time working together, but you said, you know, identifying as a forever alcoholic, even when you're in recovery does not serve you. And so I'd like for you to touch on that a little bit and how your program differs from like the typical AA. Okay. So I honestly, one of the things I, teach is that 
identifying as an alcoholic and promising to stay sober for the rest of your life is actually a mistake. Now I did it and it got me to where I'm at. So mistakes are just learning experiences, right? Like there's no shame in making a mistake. So I want to be very clear on that. And also I know that in the beginning, it also served a purpose to say I was an alcoholic because it alleviated the back and forth of if I would be drinking and when, you know, it kind of took alcohol off the table. It also bought me a membership in a community that I really appreciated the support and the camaraderie. But very quickly, I realized that sitting in a meeting with people who have not had a drink in 10 years or 20 years, and they're still talking about alcohol. Like I was like, okay, I'm, I got shit to do. This is not how I'm going to spend the rest of my life. Like I, I just realized that it was limiting. And so the, the problem with, first of all, the scientific research shows that addiction is not a disease. It's a habit. Hmm. Alcohol does not change our brain. It is repetitive drinking. It is the re repetition, you know, and reinforcing that I have stress. I'm going to have alcohol. Oh, I relieved my stress. I need more alcohol. Oh, I feel stressed over here. Now I feel stressed every night. You know, we learn how to drink and we can unlearn or more specifically, we can learn to enjoy not knocking ourselves, shooting ourselves in the foot with alcohol. You know, the actual experience of alcohol in small amounts can be pleasant for 20 minutes or an hour. But beyond that, you're, if you're honest with yourself, you're numb, you, it, it just has negative consequences. So the problem with identifying as an alcoholic is that you are identifying with the disease model. So there's, there's different ways to think about this. The AA community and the sober community at large in that what most people perceive it means to be sober, you know, the dominant sober culture is that there's a difference between normal drinkers and alcoholics. Like alcoholism is something you're born with. And I've sat in meetings with people talking about how they could tell they were alcoholics at three, you know, and they didn't have a drink till they were 16 or something like, huh? And big picture, I'm going to put that into the context. That's a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. Like if you follow Carol Dweck and the growth mindset research that that's applied from everything to academics to addiction, it shows that the belief that you can't control yourself is far more damaging than alcohol ever is. In mm -hmm. fact, alcoholics, air quotes around that, who go to treatment and go through a formal education that they are powerless against alcohol and that they do not have the ability to control themselves so that if one drink, you know, even inadvertently, if one sip of alcohol passes their lips, they will lose control that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And in fact, alcoholics, when they get out of treatment, have are nine times more likely to go binge than before they went to treatment. So so the it's kind of a trap. It, it's just another version of the alcohol trap where alcohol is God and sobriety is the solution. When in fact, the belief that you can't control yourself is the problem 
And for me, like when I work with women, it is not about alcohol. It actually, I teach sobriety as a form of self-care that's just as important as sleep, but you don't get eight hours of sleep perfectly every night. Sometimes it's Friday night and you're going to go out with friends and stay up and, and watch a moon, or you're going to have drinks at a party. Like that's okay. But you have to understand that sobriety is, is a preferred, you know, you're going to sleep better. You're going to think better. You're not so it's sobriety is awesome, but it doesn't mean you that you can't, but thinking you can't control yourself. You can't have a drink. The research actually shows that, that overcoming an addiction makes you more, you have more access to self-control. So in the sober community, there's a phrase that's tossed around, uh, you can't unpickle your cucumber. And so they teach people that once you've suffered from an addiction, you now, your brain reacts differently to alcohol. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's true in active addiction that your dopamine's all out of whack, which is why your brain responds differently to alcohol, but that heals within six months to a year. And in fact, your gray matter cortex, which is where the cognitive functioning is, is housed. And um, that is what declines with active addiction. Your, your gray matter volume actually gets smaller. Well, a year after you've spent recovering and learning new skills and coping skills, your gray matter is actually more than a person who's never overcome addiction. This is what people don't realize. This belief that you will always struggle with alcohol because you once had an addiction, science shows it is actually more likely that you're going to be much like when I have a glass of wine, I am so clear on not needing or wanting more than that. And I am so able to regulate my alcohol. And this is what is different about my program. That is very controversial. The sober community does not like that. I get a lot of hate, hate, but that is the science that aligns with my experience. And I will just say there is no right answer. There's the, there's what you do and how that works out. But I teach women that this isn't about alcohol. It's about your relationship with yourself and changing your identity and working on who you think you are in terms of what makes you happy and aligning your motivation with feeling good. Well, how is alcohol ever going to be a problem? If your goal is to be happy and to feel good, does, I mean, alcohol doesn't make you feel good. The more you drink, the worse you feel. And so it, it becomes very easy to regulate yourself, not just with alcohol, but with all substances. You know, I used to think of myself as a go big or stay home. And if one is good, 20 is probably better. And I've completely changed my relationship with myself. Less is way more on everything. Mm. So the way I teach recovery is that you have to heal your relationship with yourself and emotional sobriety is the only tool you ever need. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and I, I know there's a lot of controversial topics out there around the sober community and, you know, you've mentioned to me before, kind of like some of the messages that you get with, you know, 
what you promote and your message and what you stand behind. And I just want to, I just want to say that I love your work because coming from myself where I've been on my own healing journey, sure. I've never had an addiction to a substance, but I've had, like I mentioned earlier, addiction to in other ways, right? Like I, I too, like you am a recovering perfectionist. There's such an, an addiction to being perfect, to needing to be in control, to, you know, staying busy there's just there's so much there and it all comes back to the relationship i have with myself and you know like you were saying it's the beliefs that we can't control ourselves and those beliefs it's just all tied back to mindsets tied back to our thoughts and i know that you've said it to me before and i think you might even have it in your website you know you realize that drinking wasn't your problem it was your thinking that was your problem and that is so true for all of us. And I think, you know, whether or not you're addicted to alcohol or substance uh, abuse of, of, you know, other substances, I just stand by, you know, going through a program like yours is something that everybody needs, right? Just to have and build that relationship with yourself and to really be able to trust yourself, to know that you can be in control of yourself and your thoughts. So I, I support your program wholeheartedly. I think that what you do is so impactful to so many people. And, and it really, that's really what it comes down to. It's really having, it's building that emotional freedom. It is emotional freedom. And again, there is no right or wrong. You know, I have gone through so many beliefs and if you need any more proof that you are not your thoughts and that your thoughts aren't true. Just look at how many times you've changed your mind, hmm. you know, on who you are, or what you like, you know, whether it be religion or politics, you know, we change our minds all the time and realizing that there's no wrong way to think you just measure the consequences. And I think that people who are struggling with addiction, especially, you know, they can benefit from community and, and that is more important than what you think in terms of black or white thought processes, you know, having people around you that support you and love you is very, very important, but it's for sure. There's just so much work we need to do in the recovery community because it's just not about alcohol. It truly is about your relationship with yourself and learning how to take care of yourself. And you said something that I often tease apart where learning how to control your thoughts. Mm. Oh girl, you can't ever control your thoughts. Your thoughts are like radio, <laughs> like a radio station. There goes my dog. Hello dog. <laughs> but our thoughts, we, uh, we can't control the thoughts that pop in our head. We can control how we respond to them. That is the access point to free will. That is the access point to managing your mind, regulating your nervous system is to realize that you can, you can and will think all sorts of crazy stuff. And it's being able to decide which thought leads to the action that moves you forward. And then how to cope with the feelings of thoughts that aren't serving you. Yeah, no, you're so right. You're absolutely right. That it's not really, it doesn't really come down to controlling your thoughts, it's controlling your response to them. And I say that a lot, you know, for the external, you know, that we we can't control other people, we can control our reaction. So it and and I would say that that, you know, when you to the response to your own thoughts, that's really the same thing. You're you're controlling your reaction to yourself, right? And you said it too. I mean, how many times do we change our minds? 
we're so easily influenced by other people. We could have such a strong opinion about something and then we hear another perspective and we're like, oh, but wait a minute, you know? And so, yeah, it's just, it, it's really, a lot of it is perception. It's just what we think and who we hold to have a higher standard perhaps, or maybe we look at someone and we look up to them. Maybe we see them as having more worth and I'm using quotes here, but it really mm-hmm. just comes down to that. It's just, it's all perception. It's really what it I'll- is. All of our desires are mimetic, which means we have to see them. We are mimicking other people. You know, somebody that somebody that lives in an indigenous culture on the in the jungle doesn't wake up one day and think, I have got to have a Porsche 911 turbo today. (laughs) Like it's not a thing to them. You know, we want what we see from other people. And just being able to realize that what we think we want isn't necessarily the truth. We saw it. We made it mean something, you know, it's once you realize that you're running a program up there Mm. and that you have access to, you know, not let the program run you. That's one of my favorite things. It was all actually a quote that I kind of morphed off a Ted Lasso. And it was something about how, if you're not controlling your emotions, your emotions are controlling you. So everybody who says, well, I don't like dealing with feelings and I'm not a feely person. Well, then you're being controlled by your subconscious emotions, you know? And so if you're not managing your mind, it's managing you. Mm. And that is the ultimate motivator because who wants to be jerked around by every subconscious suggestion that comes in. And if you're not aware that, you know, all of these things are in our subconscious and we're not even conscious, you know, and just learn how to, how to go inside. And, and for me, one of the part of emotional hygiene is how do we clear this stuff? You know, it's, it's uncomfortable to sit with uncomfortable feelings. And if you're not doing it right, then yeah, you're just sitting in a shitty, nasty, funky mess, but, but it's bringing the, the putting words to the feelings, bringing the subconscious into conscious awareness. So you can identify the thought that's causing it and then ask what else could be true. Yeah. Do I want to act on that? Do I want to believe that? Or do I want to broaden my perspective here? And I make a joke with my clients. If you want proof that your mind changes, go back and look at old pictures of yourself with your 1990s hairdo and your pointed show- shoes or your low rise jeans. It's like your mind changes all the time. I can teach you how to do it on purpose, or you can just be a reaction to your environment. What do you want? <laughs> yep. Boom. There you go. <laughs> that's oh. Boom. No, that's really what it is. And yeah, you're so right about the subconscious too. And, and yeah, it's, it's a tying, it's bringing words to it. Right. So how I do, I have this process every single morning. It, I, it's kind of like my meditative journaling that I do every single morning. And this has been part of my healing. And I, I'm, I, it's so impactful for me, but I sit quietly with myself every morning and I ask myself, how do I feel? And then whatever comes up to me, whatever comes up, I, I, I trust that. And then I say, okay, whatever that is, happy, sad, anger, it doesn't matter what emotion, what do you need? What do you need from me to either, you know, if it's, if it's like a happy feeling, what do you need to grow in me? Or if it's like a not so good feeling, I'm like, okay, what do you, what, what do you like? What, what attention from me are you seeking? What do you need from me? A lot of times it just comes back to needing my own love, needing my own compassion, needing to just be kinder to myself. And again, it goes back to those thoughts, right? To have kinder thoughts. Oh my gosh, so much this conversation. I enjoyed this conversation so much, Colleen. I love, I just think it's so beautiful 
the transition that you've made for yourself and you continue to make, you're really redefining your identity and you're redefining, you know, the shame that you felt for so long and you're helping other women with their, with their journey as well. Final thoughts. What would you say to women who are struggling with alcohol or any other form of self-abuse, anybody who might be listening, who can resonate? What, what are your, what are your final thoughts for them? Stop hiding and 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 be kind to yourself so having all of this inside is it that's the secret makes you sick and that doesn't mean that you should tell anybody anything and I want to be very clear about that when I first quit drinking one of the best things I ever did this is going like wait for it this is hilarious and crazy I pretended like I was still drinking I literally had water in my vodka bottle and would splash it because I didn't want to admit to my husband that I had quit drinking because I did not yet have the tools to handle, handle it. And I was afraid that if I mentioned I had quit drinking, that all the problems we had in our marriage, it was all going to be my fault. Like it took a lot of time to Mm. untangle all those fears. Mm. And so when I say, get, you need to speak to somebody, it can be a stranger. And I will tell you anybody who's listening and struggling with alcohol, I was drinking half a fifth of vodka a day. And I had not strung together more than more than five days of sobriety in like 12 years. I drank through the flu. I drank through everything, you know, and I moderated it, you know, and I kept it where I needed to be. I was fully functioning, but I did not think that I could go without alcohol. So my, the biggest fear, and I speak to people who know what I'm talking about is, okay, I decide to quit drinking all the time. I do that every single morning. What is different about today? The difference is get out of your head and, and speak your truth to somebody. Even if you have to pay a stranger, pay a coach or whatever, because that your, that registers in your nervous system as you showing up for you, Mm. you're admitting your truth, your bullshit detectors are in your ears. So think you can't think yourself out of a thinking problem. If we're admitting that drinking is actually a thinking problem, you can't think yourself sane, but it is by bringing the subconscious into the consciousness and letting that truth be known. It's not permanent. Nothing is, but asking for help, asking for support. So my advice to anybody who is struggling in that dark secret hell is to find somebody that they can speak with and it doesn't have to be a licensed professional, but, but make it real in the real world. That's you showing up for yourself and your nervous system. You actually will feel relieved. Your biggest fear is that somebody's going to find out. And every, at every single turn, every time I spoke my truth, even though I wasn't proud of it and I was working to change it, I felt relief. Hmm. I know I said final thoughts, but you you got me thinking, and I just want, if you have something to add to this, go for it. But I was just thinking how our brain has that bias to keep us safe, right? To protect us. And so for, I can imagine that for somebody who's been drinking for so long and for so many years, the thought of today's the day, the like you said, the fear there, but how your brain could really very easily kick in into making you believe, again, your thoughts, making you believe that you can't because it's trying to keep you safe and trying to keep you, you know, in the comfort zone of where you've been for so long. So to your point, speaking it out loud can help 
break that habit. That could be like the start of breaking that habit. Yeah. And if you speak to somebody, you're also asking for help or support, you know, and I'm not going to go on for half an hour about what else you'd need on that first day. But when you ask the question, not can I stay sober, but how do I stay sober today? Mm -hmm. That's a whole different problem for your brain to solve. And for me, like I, I didn't clear the alcohol out of my house. You know, I didn't have to go somewhere. Some people do. Some people need a medical detox, but it's just, what do I need to stay sober today? And then being willing to do whatever it takes. I often I used to say sobriety. Now I would say more recovery, but I used to say sobriety is like, you know, you're pregnant with your new life. And sometimes they got to do an emergency C-section to get the baby out, you know, and mm. to me, the equivalent would be having to go to a medical detox, you know, or talk to your doctor, but you know, often childbirth is natural, a little painful, well, a lot painful. I've done it, but <laughs> But just as instead of not in, changing the words in your brain from can I to how do I, how do I, what do I need to stay sober? Just like you ask yourself in the morning, what do I need today? What do I need to stay sober? It'll probably be a lot less than you think once you're willing to say I'm doing it now. How do I do it? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, very good point. This has been so insightful. Thank you so much, Colleen, for coming on today, sharing your story, your wisdom. I'd love for you to share with my audience where people can find you, if they want more of you, and even if, you know, maybe if they would like to seek out your services and what you have going on. So I am Recover with Colleen everywhere. So my website is Recover with Colleen. And on my website, you can look at various programs I have. I also have a podcast, the Recover with Colleen podcast, where I coach weekly on emotional sobriety topics. It's not really all about alcohol, but you know that's what brings many of my listeners in. So that's an underlying theme, theme I would say, but I'm all about emotional sobriety. And then Instagram, Recover with Colleen, Facebook, also recover with Colleen. So you Google that and you'll find me. Amazing. And we'll have all of that in the show notes. I know that you have also a free masterclass on emotional sobriety. So I'll make sure that I have the link in the show notes too. Yep. That's a great, you know, one hour free program where I lay out the, the, how to get emotionally sober, how to quit drinking all in one hour and it's free. Yep. Awesome. That's an excellent resource. Thank you again, Colleen, for being here today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Kim. Thank you so much for being here and for listening to another episode of Redefining Anger. If this resonated with you in any way, I would be so grateful if you would share this episode or the podcast with a friend, a family member, anyone that you believe may benefit from it also. If you want to stay connected, you can find me on Instagram at runningongrit at running.on.grit and follow along my journey. Do you have a story to share? A voice that's aching to be heard? Send me a DM and let's get a conversation going. My information can also be found in the show notes. I look forward to connecting with you.